Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I am your host, Dr. Wasim Akhtar. Uh, today I am joined by Dr. Dan Hooper. Dan Hooper is a senior scientist at Fermi National Accelerator Lab and a professor of astronomy and astrophysics at the University of Chicago. Today we are going to discuss his book, At the Edge of Time, Exploring the Mysteries of Our Universe's First Seconds. Uh, Dan, thank you very much uh, for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. In the book, uh, At the Edge of Time, Exploring the Mysteries of Our Universe's First Seconds, you outline a number of fundamental questions about the origin and nature of the universe. Uh, you outline these questions as uh, fundamental puzzles and describe uh, various um, experiments uh, that uh, scientists are conducting uh, to solve these puzzles. Uh, before we discuss these puzzles and uh, the relevant research, uh, I am going to start uh, with the this question. Uh, in the book, you give a thorough description of the timeline that how we got here where we are now from the Big Bang to the present day. Uh, how did our universe evolve over the past 13.8 billion years? And you present this narrative backwards from the present time to the Big Bang. Uh, please describe this timeline and this journey from the present day to the Big Bang. Sure. So we know today that our universe is expanding. We can measure not only how it's expanding today, but how it's been expanding over the past several billion years. And from that, we can deduce how dense and hot our universe was over those billions of years. Of course, a lot of stuff has been going on in our universe over this window of time. Planets and stars have been forming. Galaxies are evolving, all this stuff. But in terms of the size and shape of the universe itself, we can trace how that has grown over several billions of years. In fact, it's been growing at a faster and faster rate. Um, that's a puzzle we'll get back to. So if we go back even farther in time, we can start to you know, kind of measure the, the – uh, the period in history where the first stars were forming and the you know galaxies began to form and things like this. We're talking about hundreds of millions of years after the Big Bang. I can look back even further and we can see the light, the background of light that was released into the universe 380,000 years after the Big Bang. We call this the cosmic microwave background. And the reason the light was deposited into the universe at that important critical moment in cosmic history is that for the first point, the universe got cold enough, or at least wasn't hot, so hot that uh, atoms could form for the first time. So the temperature of the whole universe at that point was about 3,000 degrees. If you put atoms into uh, something and heat them to a temperature greater than 3,000 degrees, their electrons fall off. So you don't have real atoms at that stage. But as these atoms formed, the universe became transparent to light for the first time. And all that light has been traveling through our universe ever since, and we can detect it today. So by studying those that light in that cosmic microwave background in as much detail as we can, we can learn how energy was distributed at that time, how matter was distributed, uh, what the composition of our universe was. It's, it's really a treasure trove for cosmologists. Now, going back even further, we have some ways of testing the even earlier portions of our universe's history. 
if you study the first seconds and minutes after the Big Bang, the universe in this era was, you know, maybe a, a billion degrees or hundreds of billions of degrees, depending on exactly the moment you're talking about. And at this point, nuclear fusion can proceed in a very efficient manner. So in these first seconds and minutes, we uh, can calculate how this nuclear fusion should have proceeded, taking these protons and neutrons that started out in our universe and fusing them together to make things like deuterium, helium, lithium, beryllium. And we can calculate how much of these different kinds of elements should have formed. And we can compare those calculations to measurements of their abundances in the universe today. And lo and behold, we get the same answer. So we're pretty sure we understand from this perspective, our universe's history from, let's say, a few seconds after the Big Bang up to the present. If you want to go even earlier than that, we don't really have any observations to directly rely on. So instead, we try to recreate the conditions that were there in the very, very early part of the Big Bang using machines called particle accelerators. The idea here is we take ordinary matter like protons or electrons, we accelerate them using powerful magnets to the highest speeds possible, collide them together, and take all that kinetic energy and their speed and use that through Einstein's equation equals mc squared to create new forms of matter, new forms of energy that are otherwise pretty rare in our modern universe, but that were very, very common in that first fraction of a second after the Big Bang. The Large Hadron Collider, which is our currently our most powerful particle accelerator, tells us a lot about the laws of physics as they operated in the universe as early as a, roughly a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. Thank you very much uh, for uh, this detailed uh, description of uh, the timeline. In the book, uh, you also remind us about the fundamental paradigm shift uh, from Newtonian physics uh, to today's uh, quantum mechanics. Now, we use physics to understand uh, the nature of the universe. Uh, we use physics to understand the structure and the composition and the working of this universe. Uh, so this fundamental paradigm shift from Newtonian physics to quantum physics, how big uh, this shift is, how significant this change is uh, in our approach uh, uh, to study the universe. Yeah, it's about as significant as any event in the history of science. Um, it might be the single most significant event, or at least it's right up there in the top few. And it's significant because before the early 20th century, we had very well-formulated, well-formed notions about what we meant when we said words like matter, energy, space, and time. And after this paradigm shift had occurred and the dust had kind of settled, we still used those words, but all those words meant different things. We had fundamentally different ideas about what it meant for something for space to exist. And, you know, prior to the, the, the beginning of the 20th century, we thought of space as an unchanging backdrop through which objects might move. But by the time that relativity had been established, it was clear that space could actually actively participate. It could do things. It could curve. It could warp. It could expand. It could contract. It wasn't a passive player, but an active player in our universe's history. Time, too, functioned in a very different way than it, it did uh, in, in classical physics, according to Einstein. 
uh, energy and matter were not the sort of billiard ball sort of, you know, intuitive objects that, uh, you know, someone like Isaac Newton might have imagined. Instead, the laws of quantum physics say that, um, you know, electrons and other sorts of objects can be in multiple places at one time. Um, you know, not, nothing we thought we understood in the 19th century about physics would survive this paradigm change, just paradigm shift. Really, everything was torn down and we rebuilt something more powerful and, frankly, more spectacular. Fascinating stuff. Um, uh, we will come back to uh, some of these points later in our discussion. Let us now uh, dive deep into these four fundamental puzzles, uh, um, uh, four fundamental uh, questions that you uh, discuss in this book. Uh, and the first puzzle is uh, uh, why matter exists. Uh, this is a fascinating question. Uh, why there is something instead of nothing? Uh, talk to us about that. Yeah, if you just take the laws of physics as we've learned them from particle accelerators and other experiments, there seems to be a, a nearly perfect symmetry between the particles we call matter and other particles we call antimatter. So, for example, there's an electron. We all know about the electron. But there's also something called a positron. It's just like an electron. It's the same mass and all the same basic properties but with opposite electric charge, as positive electric charge instead of negative, and opposite other sorts of quantum properties, various kinds of charges. And, you know, as far as we know, every form of matter and energy has an antimatter counterpart. Quarks of antiquarks, neutrinos of antineutrinos, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Furthermore, it turns out that it's not possible to create matter or destroy matter without creating or destroying an equal amount of antimatter in the process. So if I want to create some more matter out of nothing or out of energy, I need to create alongside it an equal amount of antimatter. The fates of these two substances seem closely intertwined. Okay, so, so far that's all good, but when you're a cosmologist and you think about the early universe, this quickly leads you to a problem. In the very early universe, we have every reason to think that in, in, you know, we'll talk about inflation later, but whatever happened very early on and populated the universe with matter and energy, that process should have created equal, exactly equal amounts of matter and antimatter. And then as the universe expanded and cooled in that first fraction of a second, all of that matter and antimatter, or just about all of it anyway, should have destroyed itself, converting it into raw forms of energy like light, leaving our universe without anything like electrons or protons or neutrons no atoms, no stars, no galaxies, and no life. But yet here we are. So this can't be the right answer. Whatever the right answer is broke that symmetry between matter and antimatter in the very early universe. Um, we have lots of theories, or I would say guesses, about how that might have played out. But at this point, we don't know which, if any, of those guesses is correct. Moving on uh, to uh, the second puzzle uh, that you discuss uh, in this book, and this puzzle is uh, the question of uh, dark matter. Uh, dark matter is an intriguing unknown uh, that we are uh, faced with. We, we cannot observe it directly, but we know it is there. Uh, so how much uh, do we know uh, about uh, uh, dark matter? So 
I would say we know quite a bit about where the dark matter is, how much there is, um, how fast it's moving, but we don't know what it is. Okay. All of the ways that we have at present conclusively detected the presence of dark matter is through the gravity of that dark matter. Um, so some of the earliest evidence came from how galaxies uh, rotate. So if we if we look at a galaxy, take uh, Andromeda, which happens to be the nearest galaxy, the Milky Way, we can look at all the visible stuff. We can look at all the stars and gas and dust and probably planets and things like this. And we can deduce based on where that mass is, how fast stars should be spinning in orbits around the, the Milky Way, and the, or the, sorry, the Andromeda galaxy. Um, this is the same thing you do if you tried to calculate the orbit of a planet around the sun or something. You know, just use ordinary laws of gravity to deduce how fast they should be moving in these stable orbits. When you do that, though, and you compare it to actual observations of how fast these stars are moving, you get a big mismatch. Those stars, especially in the outskirts of Andromeda and other galaxies, are really zipping around at greater speeds than we had any right to expect them to. And what that means is that there must be more gravity acting on those stars, pulling them inward. And that gravity can't come from things like stars and gas and dust, or it really can't come from anything made of atoms at all. It has to come from something else, something that doesn't appreciably reflect, radiate, or absorb light. And uh, we don't know what that stuff is, but for a lack of a better name, we simply call it dark matter. Now, we have a lot of ideas for what dark matter might be made of. I mean, people like me write papers proposing different uh, particle candidates that we invent and uh, or dream up. And if we're good at our jobs, we also, we don't just make them up, but then we, we, we uh, detail how you would test that particular th theory. Uh, uh, an idea for the dark matter might be without any testable consequences isn't a very interesting paper. So we're constantly trying to test different theories. And over the last 10 or 20 years, We've tested a lot of our best theories. Um, and frankly, I was, I'm pretty surprised that we haven't conclusively discovered what dark matter is by this point. Um, maybe this means that we're, you know, we're going to find it soon. And, and one of the more difficult to find candidates turns out to be the right answer. That's totally possible. But it's also possible we might be thinking about the dark matter problem in an incorrect way. After all, um, we're pretty confident that dark matter was formed in the first fraction of a second after the Big Bang, in that window of time where we don't have any direct observations to tell us what was going on. So maybe we're thinking about what dark matter is um, in terms of an early universe uh, conditions that maybe never existed, and that is leading us to look for certain kinds of dark matter candidates when we should really be thinking about dark matter and the creation of that dark matter in a very different way. And the third puzzle is about um, a related concept. Uh, it is the concept of dark energy. Again, uh, we know uh, what dark energy is doing, uh, uh, we, but, but we don't know what exactly it is. Yeah, so when we take Einstein's equations of general relativity and we do things like assume that the universe is pretty homogeneous and isotropic, the same amount of stuff everywhere, which turns out to be pretty good assumption. And we assume that the universe is mostly filled with matter, which of the parts we can see, that seems to be true. 
um, you can work out how fast a universe should expand over time. And there are a couple of different options depending on how much matter there is in the universe, what the density of it is. It could be that the universe will get bigger for a while. It'll reach a maximum size and then it will start contracting, uh, kind of undergoing a big bang in reverse, something we call a big crunch. On the other hand, it's possible that the universe might get bigger forever, just expanding without limit. And then you could live kind of in the boundary of those two things where it expands getting bigger, but it kind of plateaus to a very large, but maximum size and slowing down and slowing down. The thing that all three of these solutions have in common is that the when the universe is expanding, it's always expanding at a slower rate as time goes on. The, uh, the, the equations of relativity lead us to expect that our universe should be slowing down in terms of the rate of its expansion. In the 1990s, for the first time, we had telescopes that were powerful enough to test which of these scenarios our, our real universe happened to be following, and people were very excited about this. Um, but when they you know, looked at that data, well, they found uh, not A, B, or C are three options, but they found D, none of the above. Our universe isn't, isn't slowing down at all. It's getting faster in its rate of expansion, at least over the past, uh, let's say, a few billion years. At present, the only way we have to interpret this, at least in the context of Einstein's theory, is to postulate that the vacuum of space itself contains within it a fixed density of energy. We call this stuff dark energy. Sometimes people call it vacuum energy, but that's the same thing. And if that's true, then as the universe expands and all the matter and other stuff gets diluted by that expansion, the dark energy doesn't get diluted because it's fixed, its density is fixed. And that means that as time goes on, it becomes more and more important. And a few billion years ago, it started to dominate the overall energy density of the universe. Most of the energy was in the form of dark energy, and that causes the universe to begin to accelerate in its rate of expansion. And if this is true and that dark energy doesn't go away and we don't see any reason why it would, then the universe should get bigger at a faster rate without limit. Um, kind of diluting away all of the other kinds of contents of the universe. Now, why this is a problem, in addition to just being surprising, is that we can calculate what we think, using the laws of quantum physics, what we think the energy density of the vacuum should be. And we kind of can concoct ways to calculate in a couple different ways. We could assume there's some sort of symmetry built into nature that sets us exactly to zero. So that, that's one thing that people thought was possible. And the other thing that people thought was possible, or, or at least mathematically possible, was that a universe like ours would have a huge density of vacuum energy or dark energy, something like 10 to the 120 times more of it than we actually have in our universe. That's obviously not the case. That wouldn't be a universe that life could exist in. Um, so we kind of just assumed there wouldn't be any dark energy, but then it was measured to have this dark energy built into it. And we don't know why. And something happened in the early universe, something set off the conditions of the early universe that made this possible. And I, if, if anyone has an explanation for it, I haven't heard it yet. It's at least a good one. Um, one idea that gets thrown around, which I'm actually a pretty big fan of, is the idea that maybe most universes do have much, much more dark energy, and those don't contain life. So by the fact that we have to find ourselves living in a universe that could support life, 
we by definition have to live in an exceptional or very rare universe. This is an idea put forth by Steven Weinberg, the Nobel laureate back in, I think, 1987. So there are ideas floating around there, but they're all pretty radical. And they all say something very strange about the origin and early history of our universe. Fascinating stuff. Um, uh, and we may come back to some of these points later in our conversation. Uh, but uh, let us uh, now look at the fourth puzzle uh, that you discuss in the book, uh, which is uh, uh, why our universe uh, uh, is uniform. Uh, when we look around, we find that our universe is very uniform. Yeah. I mean, if you study the universe, you take some really big piece of volume of space and you count the number of galaxies in it. And then you take another piece of space of the same size at the same time, you find basically the same number of galaxies. It's, it's really smooth and uniform. And we had no reason to expect that, at least in the, in the uh, classical version of the Big Bang, by which I mean like cosmologists thinking in the 60s and 70s. Um, we were pretty surprised to find that our universe was so smooth and uniform and, and also flat. What I mean by flat is that the laws of Euclidean geometry apply, this kind of stuff you learn in high school geometry classes. Um, from Einstein's theories, we had every reason to think that um, space would be non-Euclidean. Uh, things like uh, you know the three angles of a big, big triangle spread across the cosmos shouldn't add up to 180. At least, you know, there's no reason to think they needed to. And and uh, this was a began to be a pretty big problem for cosmologists in the 70s who started to worry about this. And then in the 1980s, uh, some particle physicists and cosmologists began to come up with a class of theories called cosmic inflation that could explain these features of about our universe, but still in the Big Bang paradigm. They basically posited that very, very shortly after the Big Bang, there was a very brief period of time in which the universe expanded in kind of a burst. So our universe has been expanding all along, but it does it in a slow and steady way, or at least steady way. In inflation theories, there was like a, a growth where it was just exponential, wild, incredibly fast, uh, explosive growth of the universe for something like a period of 10 to the minus 32 seconds. So not very long, but in that, in that, in that 10 to the minus 32 seconds, the universe's volume increased by something like a power of 10 to the 75. So these are very, very difficult numbers to wrap your head around, but they're, they're enormously short period of time, enormous growth. And when you do that, if you posit something like that, then for the you know you can explain why the universe has become flat in the same way that if you inflate a balloon its surface gets flatter as you do that and um in terms of the uniformity it alt because of the way that the the uh, universe uh, inflation ends and the universe gets refilled with hot energy and matter um the that could explain why the universe was so smooth on the scales we could observe it and uh, yeah, it had a lot going for it. But I think if that was the end of the story, we would consider inflation to be like one of many possibilities, but it wouldn't have any special privileged status. But it also made a number of very specific predictions for things we would go on to measure. In particular, they said some very detailed things about what the cosmic microwave background should look like. 
And over decades that followed, we've made those measurements for the first time, and they agree with the predictions. You know, and, and to use some technical jargon, which, you know, but uh, we, we said that the the temperature variations of cosmic microwave background should be uh, approximately Gaussian and uh, approximately scale invariant and adiabatic, and, and as it turns out, that's all true. So um, these days, most cosmologists are at least provisionally uh, convinced that something like inflation took place, but we don't understand exactly why or what drove it to happen, what the physics that dictated inflation was or how it ended, how the universe was filled with matter and energy when it was done. All these things are open questions, and um, I can't think of any bigger questions to ask in in all of science and certainly not in all of cosmology. Dan, uh, we are discussing your book, uh, At the Edge of Time, Exploring the Mysteries of Our Universe's uh, First Seconds. You suggest that uh, to understand these puzzles, uh, to answer these fundamental questions, we need to understand that uh, what happened at the very beginning of our universe, uh, what happened in the first few seconds uh, when this universe uh, came into existence. Why do you think that studying these uh, first few seconds of our universe uh, uh, holds the key uh, to these puzzles and these uh, fundamental uh, questions? Yeah, all four of these puzzles I've mentioned and described, they all point back to something going on that w- differently than we currently understand in that first fraction of a second. Uh, we know that the matter had won out over antimatter by the time that nuclear fusion was forming the light elements a few seconds after the Big Bang. So whatever set that asymmetry between matter and antimatter happened in that in that first you know, few seconds or less, probably a probably a small fraction of a second. We also know the dark matter was present in our universe very early in, in our universe's history. It was almost certainly formed in the first small fraction of a second after the Big Bang. Um, dark energy seems to be a built-in feature of our universe, and the only solutions I'm aware of point to something associated with the the Big Bang itself. These these sort of uh, Weinbergian uh, you know selection uh, bias sort of uh, solutions. And then, you know, lastly, inflation was definitely an, uh, an event that took place in very early history. And maybe these are four separate things that, that don't have a common solution. But maybe um, if we understood the solution to one of these, it would kind of unravel the others. Maybe they are interwoven in a way where we're really not trying to solve four separate puzzles as it currently looks, but rather these are four puzzles are four features of a common puzzle that we might be able to piece together with uh, better observations, measurements, experiments, and even just general thinking or theorizing. Uh, there is a view uh, that there are multiple universes and our universe is uh, one of uh, many universes out there. I'm going to ask you two uh, related uh, questions. Uh, My first question is that what is your view on this theory of multiple universes? And my second question uh, is, 
यू से दैट द वे आवर यूनिवर्स हैज इवॉल्व्ड इट डिपेंड्स ऑन व्हाट हैपन्ड इन द फर्स्ट फ्यू सेकेंड्स ऑफ द फॉर्मेशन ऑफ आवर यूनिवर्स सो इफ वी एक्सेप्ट दैट देयर आर मेनी यूनिवर्सेज then depending on what happened in the first um, few seconds each universe perhaps uh, has evolved uh, differently so let us discuss these um, uh, related questions uh, starting with what is your view on on the multi universe theory so we don't have anything that i would call proof or like overwhelming evidence that a multiverse exists it is is very possible that our universe is the only one that being said i would be surprised if that were the real answer um i think of human history as a series of events in which we slowly and resistantly accepted the idea that where we live isn't as special or unique or privileged as we previously thought I could easily imagine some, you know, prehistoric uh, you know, group of people living on an island somewhere. They'd never seen another island, it's just ocean as far as the eye could see, and of course they would be convinced that their island was the entirety of the universe and there's just water in all directions. This would persist until they found other people or learned to build boats and to go to other islands whatever. and uh but they would soon enough or eventually learn that there are lots of islands um similarly uh you know until the copernican revolution human beings for the most part imagined that the earth was unique and that it was the center of the universe it was the only thing like the earth and the sun and what they called the planets you know orbited around the earth we were we were a very privileged and very special a uh, location that we were were residing in Copernicus and Galileo and others showed that this wasn't true the earth is just one of many planets in orbit around the sun not long after that it was suggested that for the first time that maybe those things we call stars in the night sky are just you know qualitatively similar objects to the sun just much farther away and maybe those stars have planets around them of their own Of course that's very obvious to us now but that was a very controversial idea at the time uh the Italian monk Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake for a variety of heretical ideas and that was one uh, of those ideas um going farther to more recent history as early as the 1920s astronomers debated whether the milky way was the only galaxy like essentially the entire universe or if there were many many galaxies in the universe one of which was the milky way that was only 100 years ago that you could have debates like that of course now we know there are something like a trillion galaxies in the observable universe so what's the next step on this logical logical progression i think the next step is well instead of assuming that our universe is unique because nothing else about where we've been in the cosmos has ever proven to be unique in the past despite our strong presumptions that 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 would be the case i think it's much more likely that our universe is just one of many um and maybe someday we will devise clever or uh or convincing ways to find out if that's true so um at present uh, if we don't have any proof uh, that uh, there are multiple universes uh, then can we say uh, that this idea is just an extrapolation 
of what we uh, have been going through in terms of scientific discoveries? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'd call it extrapolation. We we do have several lines of reasoning that might support uh, the formation or existence of a multiverse. Well, okay, let, let's let's back up. Let's be careful about what we say when what we mean when we say the word universe. Um, different people have different definitions. I'm going to offer a definition. And uh, if you don't like it, it's fine. It's just it's my choice of what I'm defining words to mean. Um, but I'm going to define a universe as a patch of space that the things within it could at least hypothetically interact with the other things in it. So because our universe is expanding, there's a boundary to our universe by this definition. And what I mean by that is if because the universe is expanding, there are places in space that I could never reach even traveling at the speed of light. The space between me and some place might be expanding at a rate faster than light. So even traveling at the fastest speed possible, the speed of light, I could never get there. And that means I could never see it. I could never interact with it. It could never see me. It could never interact with me. We are entirely causally disconnected from one another. So I would consider that piece of space to not be in my universe. So from this perspective, my universe is a, is a, you know, a sphere or a spherical piece of space that goes for tens of billions of light years in any given direction. And beyond that, that's not my universe anymore. Now, I don't think any reasonable person thinks space just ends where that cosmic horizon that bounds my universe in ends. So from that perspective, if you, if you define a universe to mean what I just said, I define it to be, then of course there's a multiverse. The space goes on beyond that. We don't know how far. It might be that it goes on forever. And it might be it goes on for just a very long time and eventually, you know, wraps around on itself or otherwise comes to some sort of boundary or end. We don't know. Um, but by that perspective, it would seem very weird if there weren't many, many things that I would define as separate universes. There are other kinds of universes, too, that we have uh, motivation to, to, to uh, take a, a serious possibilities. One, one kind has to do with quantum mechanics. So um, a weird feature of quantum mechanics. Well, actually, I'm going to go. I'm going to go down a, a road with this. Um, so there's a thought experiment to kind of demonstrate how bizarre some of the features of quantum mechanics are, called the Schrödinger cat experiment. So let me tell you about that. This is an idea put forth in the 30s by Erwin uh, Schrödinger, a great physicist. Um, this is not the sort of experiment you would actually go out and conduct. It's not that sort of experiment. It's, an, it's a hypothetical experiment, a thought experiment um, that's purpose is to illustrate some, some of the consequences, some of the logical consequences of quantum physics. So he starts with uh, saying, I've got a little vial or something of some sort of radioactive atom or a radioactive material. And um, I have a certain quantity of it such that after an hour, there's a 50% chance that this stuff will decayed, putting out some radiation and a 50% chance that it won't have. So quantum physics, unlike the, the classical physics, Newtonian physics that preceded it, isn't deterministic. So you can't say for sure it will happen or not. All you can say is probabilistically, there's like a 50-50 chance that it decays in that hour. That's all you, that's all you can possibly say. So he says, now I'm going to take that radioactive material and I'm going to hook it up to a vial of uh, Geiger counter. And I'm going to hook that Geiger counter up to a vial of poison. 
such that if the radiation gets goes off, the Geiger counter will be triggered and it will break open the vial of poison, filling the surrounding area. I put all that in a box and I put a cat in the box and I close the door and I seal it. So now I wait an hour. Common sense or our Newtonian sense of the universe says that after an hour, the cat is either alive or dead. Uh, Notice the important choice of grammar here. I've used the word or. We think that the cat is either alive or dead, and we just don't know which it is until we open it. But that's not what the laws of quantum physics say. The laws of quantum physics say uh, until you make an observation of a quantum system, it is in a superposition of all possible quantum states. In In other words, the atom has and has not decayed both at the same time. The Geiger counter has and has not been triggered. The poison has and has not been released. And therefore, the cat is alive and dead at the same time. It is in a superposition of those quantum states. And so far, nothing I've said is controversial. This is, uh, this is how quantum physics works. We have many, many experiments to show this is how it works. The controversial part then comes in where we open the box what happens then? In kind of the traditional way that physicists thought of this in 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, was to say upon opening the door of the box and observing the system, including the cat, the wave function of the cat, which was in a superposition of alive and dead states, collapses to one or the other. The act of observation makes the cat entirely alive or entirely dead. This is weird. There's no reason that I can think of why a conscious observer should have that power over the universe. It raises all sorts of questions that frankly don't have any good answers. Um, Like what, what exactly constitutes an observer an observation? Um, You know, can, can just anybody be an observer? Can an animal be an observer? Could an embryo be an observer? Could a flea on that cat be an observer? Could the cat collapse its own wave function? None of these have good self-consistent answers. Um, This view of quantum mechanics, commonly known as the Copenhagen view, is littered with deadly issues. Um, So in the 1950s, a guy named Hugh Everett III, a grad student at Princeton at the time, proposed a different interpretation of quantum mechanics. He said, those wave functions just never collapse. They just keep evolving. From that perspective, when you open the door, the superposition of alive and dead states persists, but now the universe is in a superposition of you observing a live cat and you observing a dead cat. Both are physically real states that the universe is a combination of all of those quantum possibilities. So going back to your question about multiverses, in this sense, what we know about quantum mechanics seems to imply that our universe is a giant combination or superposition of quantum states. You can think of them as different quantum universes. So there is a quantum level in which there's a multiverse, a quantum multiverse, in addition to any spatial one we might imagine. Fascinating uh, stuff. And uh, this uh, nicely brings us to my next uh, question. Um, We touched upon the paradigm shift from Newtonian physics to quantum physics uh, earlier in our conversation. 
Newtonian physics uh, helps us to understand large-scale structures and processes um, in our universe. Quantum physics uh, enables us to study very small-scale activities and processes in the universe. And there are efforts to develop a theory, uh, a theory of everything that should enable us to describe our universe uh, at large scale as well as at uh, small scale. A theory that can uh, describe everything in the universe um, that should enable us to model universe as a whole. My question is, uh, where where are we in this process of developing this theory of uh, everything? And... Uh, is such a theory possible? Uh, is this a right approach uh, to try to develop um, a theory of everything? So my view of the history of science, and especially physics, but really all science, is that many of the greatest achievements in that history are examples where we take two seemingly different facets of nature and unify them into a common theory. Um, let me give you a couple of examples. So Prior to, you know, Kepler and Newton and these people, there was a notion that things were pulled downwards, what we'd call gravity, towards the Earth. And then there were various explanations posited for why the planets moved around the sun in the way that they did. It wasn't until Newtonian ideas about a universal force of gravity or attraction from the force of gravity set in, and it could explain both of these things with the same equation. These two totally separate, seemingly separate pieces of phenomena were all just a force that was proportional to the two masses over the distance between them squared. Once you had that, you could explain why rocks fall downward in the way they do, and you could explain why Mars moves around the sun in the way it does. All in one theory, you could explain more with less. Another example is in the early 1800s, physicists had a pretty good theory of electricity, static electricity, things like this, electric fields. And they had a separate pretty good theory of magnetism, theories that explain you know, why compasses point north and things like that. But James Clerk Maxwell and others in the middle of that century began to deduce that these things aren't really separate phenomena at all. In fact, all a magnetic field really is, is an electric field that's changing with time. So either one that's uh, moving with respect to the observer or, or otherwise changing. That is what a magnetic field really is. So in that unification of electricity and magnetism, we replace two totally separate things with one common thing, again, explaining more with a simpler theory. So bringing it forward, Right now, we have two big theories in physics. We have general relativity, which is our theory of you know, space and time, um, gravity. Um, it explains an enormous variety of data. And then we have our quantum theory. Um, we used to call quantum mechanics these days. In the last, you know, from the middle of the 20th century on, we think of it more as a quantum field theory. It's a more sweeping theory. Um, and part of that is something called the standard model that describes all of the particles that we've observed in the universe and all their characteristics and, and their detailed interactions. Both of these theories, quantum field theory and uh, general relativity, have been incredibly successful. 
they, um, I would, I would argue they are the two most successful theories in the history of science. Um, and by, by that, what I mean is like, they can predict more stuff with more precision that agrees with those experiments than I think anything that's ever been done. Um, you know, and, and, and for year after year after year, these experiments just continue to succeed. They predict things that, you know, were many, many decades away from being measured at the time. And those predictions just keep panning out. However, despite their successes, we know they're not completely compatible with each other. Um, if you have relatively kind of weak gravity conditions, like say the solar system, you can do quantum field theory and that, and that's fine. But if you considered a situation where gravity was really, really strong, by which I mean the space was very, very severely curved, we know that quantum physics doesn't work, or maybe vice versa. Maybe the, the quantum nature of space and time falls apart in an inconsistent way, and you get infinities when you calculate stuff, and nothing makes sense. So what this tells us is that one or both of these very successful theories is wrong or at least incomplete. And we're looking for something actively that we would call a theory of everything, which would encompass both of these grand theories. Um, I don't really have a horse in this race, uh, but you know, people I trust seem to think that string theory shows a lot of promise. Um, the idea here is that um, quantum objects aren't point particles like we might picture, but are extended objects. They have a length to them. They might even be sheets and other sorts of various kinds of objects that travel, that, that, that extend throughout space. Um, string theory has some, you know, considerable challenges in the sense that it can't be done in three dimensions of space like we're used to. It requires 10, 11, or 26 dimensions of space, depending on how you want to think about certain things. Um, and other sorts of features. And frankly, it hasn't made a lot of predictions that we can test yet. So we just don't know if string theory is right. People also worked on theories called loop quantum gravity and proponents of that are very excited. Um, frankly, it would shock me if anytime, particularly soon, we had resolution to this situation. We've been working on these things for many decades now and progress has been made in certain avenues. Um, but I don't see string theory making predictions that um, we'll be able to concretely test, um, you know, in, in, in the near term horizon anyway. I hope I'm wrong, but that's what it looks like to me right now. We now have uh, confirmations uh, that uh, gravitational waves uh, do exist. You have discussed this in your book as well. Uh, how big is uh, this discovery and how will it uh, improve um, our ability to study the universe? Yeah, so let me just start by explaining what a gravitational wave is and then I'll talk about what we've learned about them in recent years. So uh, when you think of a wave, you usually picture something moving through a medium, you know, like a sound wave or pressure patterns moving through, you know, air or whatever medium the the, the, the uh, sound sound is moving through. A water wave is, you know, molecules of water moving in, in this pattern. In the case of a gravitational wave, the medium is actually space-time itself. So um, general relativity says that you can expand or contract pieces of space. So imagine a distortion in space-time traveling through space, stretching 
in a periodic way the space as it travels through it. So what would that look like as the gravitational wave passed through you? It would look like in some particular direction, space gets bigger. It stretches space in one one direction while comp- uh, contracting or compactifying it. Or, that's not the right word. Making it smaller in the opposite, in the perpendicular direction. And then this happens kind of in an oscillatory fashion. So you get bigger, smaller, bigger, smaller as the wave passes through you. And, and I'm not talking about like big changes in space. These are really, really small and you need incredibly sensitive detectors to see this. And right now, the the leading detector of this type is, is something called LIGO. Um, there are two locations of, of this uh, d- this gravitational wave detector. Um, one's in uh, Louisiana, and one's in uh, Washington State. And uh, you know, people have been building various uh, gravitational wave detectors for a long time, trying to make them more and more sensitive. But over the last several years, we've actually started to see astrophysical objects or the gravitational waves from certain astrophysical objects. So really a lot of stuff out there in nature we think gives off gravitational waves. I mean, something in an orbit around a star will give off gravitational waves, but they're going to be way too faint for us to ever see them. So we can at present only see gravitational waves from really cataclysmic events, like the mergers of pairs of black holes or neutron stars. So you probably know what a black hole is. It's an object that's so so uh, compact and so massive that l- even light can't escape it. These are kind of nature's most extreme forms of gravity. A neutron star isn't quite as extreme, although they're still pretty bizarre. Um, they're, they're an object made almost entirely of neutrons. And uh, if you took something the, si- the, the mass of the sun and converted it into a neutron star – it'd be about you know the size of a city. So incredibly dense nuclear matter. Um, that's, that, that's what you find at a neutron star. So when black holes or neutron stars merge into each other, and they do occasionally, they form bigger black holes typically. And the, in the process of kind of spiraling into each other, they, in the last, say, second or so, of that in spiral, they, they deposit a huge flash of gravitational waves. And those are the things that LIGO has been detecting in, in, in uh, recent years. I think they're up to, you know, a dozen or so of these detections at this point. In fact, I just learned this morning of a new discovery from LIGO. Yes, uh, you, you are right. Observed, yeah. Yeah. So they've observed, um, apparently they observed it last year, but we're learning about it now. Uh, these, these are the two biggest black holes we've ever seen merge forming uh, something we call an intermediate mass black hole. We call it intermediate because it's too big to be uh, like uh, 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 just a failed star or a star that went supernova and collapsed. Um, it's hundreds of, or a couple, 150 or something times as massive as the sun. I can't remember the exact number in that ballpark. Um, but it's not what we call a supermassive black hole. There are these millions and billions of solar mass black holes in the middle of most galaxies. This is the first time we've seen one in between. So it's not something comparable to a massive star. It's not millions or billions of times as massive as a star. It's something like 100 or 200 times as massive as a star. This is the first time we've ever seen anything like that. We are discussing your book, uh, At the Edge of Time, Exploring the Mysteries of Our Universe's First Seconds. We have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss uh, in this book. 
Is there anything else that uh, you suggest uh, we should discuss before uh, we close this discussion? Anything that uh, I might have uh, overlooked? So I'll just say that in the years and decades ahead, I think there are incredible opportunities for us to kind of probe for the first time this early window of our cosmic history, that first fraction of a second. We're going to measure the cosmic microwave background in new ways that will give us insights into the nature of inflation. If we find out really if it did take place, and if so, we'll learn a lot about you know how much energy was in the universe at that time, or the density of energy, I should say, and what the universe was like when inflation ended and the universe filled with matter and radiation for the first time. Um, these are things that I, I, I expect to play out in the years and decades ahead. Um, similarly, we hope to build even greater gravitational wave detectors. Um, they'll have to be deployed on satellites in space, but these uh, could plausibly detect gravitational waves that were formed in the first fraction of a second after the Big Bang, either through inflation itself or maybe through various kinds of events that we call phase transitions that might have played out in that first fraction of a second. That would be amazing. Um, we're also doing things like looking for the neutrinos that were formed in the first second or so after the Big Bang. Um, we're all, you know, and at the same time, we're looking for uh, hints about what dark matter might be made of. Um, if we were to discover the nature of dark matter, we could begin to deduce how it was formed in the Big Bang, testing uh, things about that first fraction of a second. So for these and other avenues that we're currently exploring, I think it's possible that if, you know, I had to, if I wrote a new book on cosmology some years from now or a decade or two from now, it might have a very different picture. It might present something where the early universe has kind of been mapped out. We understand a great deal about this. Um, and it might look a lot like what the textbooks say now, This what our extrapolations say, or it might look very, very different indeed. I'm not sure which I think is most likely at this time. Um, I like to, uh, in my popular lectures on this sort of thing, I like to compare the moment we're in now in cosmology with the moment that physics was in in 1904. In 1904, classical physics had, had uh, thrived for 200 years, and everyone alive seemed to think that it would thrive for some other great amount of time in the future, maybe forever. Um, but in 1905, a huge revolution was kicked off by Albert Einstein, ushering in relativity and quantum physics in ways that no one in 1904 could have imagined. I look at the puzzles we face in cosmology today, and I start to wonder if maybe we're missing big paradigm-shifting elements in the way we think about the early universe. And if that's true, and I, we can't say for sure whether it is, there's no way to know at this point, but if it's true, the next years and decades might uh, bring us surprises that, just like in 1904, no one today can imagine. Um, I, for one, hope that's true because it would make the rest of my career a lot more exciting uh, than, than the other way. You are involved in a number of uh, science communication activities, and I believe uh, you have recently uh, started a podcast. Uh, am I correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I've been doing research with an undergrad at the University of Chicago named Shalma Wegsman for a couple of years, and uh, she just finished her degree and started grad school at New York University. And uh, she and I have recently launched a, the podcast, Why This Universe? We put out you know, roughly 20 or 30 minute 
punchy uh, physics podcasts on kind of whatever we think is the wild and cool idea that we want to explore that week. We have episodes on black holes and dark matter and quantum physics and curvature of space and, you know, antimatter. The list goes on and on and on. Uh, it's available everywhere that you uh, can find podcasts. So check out Why This Universe. Dr. Dan Hooper, uh, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a great time. Thank you and goodbye.